0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: A man visits his doctor. He has celery stalks stuck in each ear, a carrot stuck up each nostril, and he mumbles, Doc, I'm not feeling well. And the doctor replies, well, maybe you're not eating right.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from author Cheryl Tippins. That'll help break
0: the ice. Later, she'll read from her new book. Plus, we'll speak with Oscar Isaac, who's up for a Spirit
2: Award this weekend for his starring role in the Coen Brothers film... Inside Lewin Davis. Also coming up, international star Mads Mickelson explains the joy of playing a madman, and in a few minutes, the story of a close shave. Literally. And if
0: this all sounds familiar, it's because this is an encore broadcast of one of our favorite past episodes. Mm -hmm. So cast your mind back to November, a time before most folks even knew where Sochi was, when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing
3: these headlines. It is official. The city of Detroit is bankrupt. Cyber Monday set
0: a new record in online sales, topping $2 billion for the first time ever. For now,
4: let us pause and give thanks for the fact that Nelson Mandela lived.
0: Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Lizzie O'Leary. She is a host and correspondent at our sister show, Marketplace. Lizzie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
3: I'm going to talk about stamps.
0: Stamps. Stamps. Fun. Okay.
3: Basically, what happened is the Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. that is on those forever stamps. Oh, yes. Is not actually the Statue of Liberty. The Postal Service made a mistake when they commissioned this stamp. They pulled up images of what they thought was the Statue of Liberty, and instead it was a statue like the Statue of Liberty outside of a casino in Vegas. <laughs>
2: oh, my God. Yeah. Well, that is almost more American.
0: Yeah, that's the right?
3: most
2: American yeah. <laughs> thing. You could maybe put a hot dog on a stand. So how did this come to light?
3: Because okay. the stamp's been around for a while. Right, the stamp's been around for a while. So the sculptor who... Made this statue. Robert Davidson is now suing the Postal Service because this was his image. And he says it's a little more sultry. She's got like a little bit of a smile. There's a little more intrigue to her than Whoa. the actual Lady Liberty. So, yeah. so
2: sexy librarian and sexy statue of liberty. Yeah, That's
3: pretty like much, next yeah. year's
2: Halloween costumes.
0: <laughs> so let me get this straight. A guy who copied a guy. Is yes. suing somebody for copying for him? For copying him
3: some more guys, oh, okay. yeah. Okay.
0: God bless America. Yeah, some more
3: guys for copying him. Sounds
0: guys. like an MC Escher stamp. But
3: the thing so, when I talked to the Postal Service, they said something like this can increase popularity. They have a center where they can print more stamps. So, if everybody's suddenly like, ooh, I want the Sexy Liberty stamp. <laughs> You can order it. I
2: like it's the sexy Liberty stamp.
0: You
3: can order the sexy Liberty (laughs) stamp. So
2: basically they think the controversy will actually make people stampede to buy this stamp. Stampede? Oh,
3: come uh, on.
5: Did
0: you mean that, Rico, when you said that? I
2: really didn't. But uh, (laughs) I'm going to pretend that that didn't happen and say goodbye to Lizzie immediately. Thanks for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's a leaky faucet, dripping booze. Mm, that's not, I don't even want to fix that. Maybe uh, not. First, the history. 112 years ago this week, a guy from Massachusetts applied for the patent on a device that improved the lives of a lot of people.
0: Especially landfill owners. Mm. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
4: When a razor gets too dull to shave, most folks buy a fresh disposable blade. When it happened to King C. Gillette, he invented disposable blades. The year was 1895, and King was using a newfangled contraption called the safety razor. Unlike a straight razor, it had a protective plate that exposed just enough blade to safely shave his whiskers. But like a straight razor, the thick blade had to be sharpened when it got dull. It eventually had to be sent away to be honed by a pro. One morning, bummed that his safety blade was on its last legs, King had an idea that hit him, quote, More with the rapidity of a dream than the slow process of reasoning. He envisioned a razor handle into which guys could put a wafer-thin blade. When it got dull, they'd just throw it out. Metallurgists told King he could never make a blade thin and cheap enough to trash, but sturdy enough to actually shave. So he hired an engineer to design one anyway. Six years later, they founded the American Safety Razor Company, later named Gillette. The invention was a hit, and with a picture of King adorning every pack of blades, he literally became the face of successful capitalism. Which is ironic, since he was a passionate socialist. He published books describing his concept of an utopian communal megacity run by a single publicly-owned corporation and powered by energy from Niagara Falls. King did eventually experience the downside of capitalism. He lost his fortune in the Great Depression and died broke. But the market he pioneered is still going strong. Americans now buy an estimated 2 billion disposable razors and blades per year.
2: So that was the history, and now for the drink to go with it. I'm speaking with Steve Bowman. He is co-owner of Fairstead Kitchen in Brookline, Mass., where Mr. Gillette resided when he patented his disposable safety razors. And, Steve, what drink did that inspire?
6: Well, we're calling it the King's Fizz, of course, in honor of Mr. King Gillette. And we wanted to reflect both the history of Boston and Brookline rum and morning traditions, <laughs> okay. so like shaving, little shaving, a little coffee liqueur in there, oh,
2: I all see. of those
6: things that are good in the morning.
2: So something to wake you up. But you mentioned rum. Rum is a, is typical of the Brookline area.
6: It really is. There's a rum distillery established on the edge of Brookline in Boston in the late 1600s until the turn of the 20th century. So we thought it was fitting for this drink. Sure.
2: So you've got you mentioned coffee liqueur what, and rum. How does this put together?
6: Begins with the uh, dark rum. Okay coffee liqueur and grenadine, dry curacao, as well as an egg white.
2: Oh, so it is kind of like breakfast. You get your omelet Absolutely. in there.
6: Absolutely. <laughs> this is the start of a great day.
2: <laughs> or the beginning of a long nap. Either way.
6: You know, I believe that great days start with long naps,
2: but
6: <laughs> that's just my personal take.
2: Wake up, take a nap. Uh, what else is in there?
6: There's a, after this gets shaken without ice and then again with ice, it is strained into a glass and topped with little Coca-Cola, perhaps the second national beverage. There you go. You get that jolt of caffeine however you take it.
2: <laughs> you get it both ways in this, the co- coffee and Coke. Jeez. And
6: my favorite thing about this drink is that egg white gives it this rich, frothy top that reminds me of shaving cream to begin the morning.
2: <laughs> I actually, I have to tell you, when I thought about what I would do for a shaving-themed cocktail, I imagine maybe chocolate sprinkles in there. So when ah. you're done, there'd be a ring of them in the bottom of the glass like your shaved whiskers in the sink.
6: <laughs> that's um, creative. I must confess, we never thought about whiskers in the beverage. That's
2: very good. I'm really glad you didn't. So, Brendan, I found some photos of those old Gillette blade boxes with King uh-huh. Gillette's picture on the front, right? Yeah. And he did have clean cheeks, but he still had a mustache. All right. Well, I her- think
0: that's as clean-shaven as guys got back then.
2: It's <laughs> probably true. they also her suit. In the Gilded Age, every month was Movember, is it- my understanding. I
0: don't think they had that word, but okay. And <laughs> people, you can find our cocktail recipes all year round at dinnerpartydownload.org. All
2: right, we learned about Sexy Lady Liberty, and we've had a drink. Mm-hmm. Now it is time for some music suggestions.
0: For that, we turn to songwriter Jordan Lee... For the past few years, he's traveled the country playing to devoted audiences in basements and living rooms. Mm. But his new album, under the moniker Mutual Benefit, may bring him to bigger venues. Pitchfork just gave it their best new music accolade. He's here to suggest tunes from musicians he's devoted to.
7: My name is Jordan, and I play music under the pseudonym Mutual Benefit. Here's my dinner party soundtrack. The first track is called Coast, and it's by Emily Rio. Sometimes when you put on a song at a dinner party, it's really jarring. And I think this one really eases you into the evening. It starts off very modestly, and this big church organ comes in, and it's huge. The first time I heard this song, I was sleeping on a couch in a rehearsal space, probably feeling a little lonely. It sounded like things that I was making, and it was a really comforting presence. So the second song is by a band called Magical Mistakes. It's called With Love. I'm not usually drawn to completely electronic music. He incorporates a lot of organic sounds but manipulates them where it's very much a unique sonic space. Sometimes you can make violin really cheesy, but he kind of brings it in almost like a sample, and I think it's really subtle and amazing. At a dinner party, you don't want the music to be overpowering, but it is good to have something in the background to keep a warm buzz going. For my third song, her name is Lau Nau. It's called Pena Voima Veloa. Lau Nau is, I think, a librarian in a small Finnish town. If you could have a spirit song the same way you have a spirit animal, this would definitely be that song. Instead of focusing on the melody that this stringed instrument is making, it's being bowed, and you can hear the buzz of the bow just as loud as the note that it's making. She had a newborn baby when she wrote this, and so all the sounds were made when her child had fallen asleep. It's almost like they're trying to make a piece of art but not wake up their kid. (laughs) Well, there's nothing more uncomfortable than playing your own music at a dinner party, but if that had to happen, I'm most proud of the song Advanced Falconry. Advanced falconry was kind of a trend for a while amongst aristocrats and they would have ornate headgear to put on their falcon and they would have a matching outfit and train their falcon to come back to them. It's ridiculous, but it matches up with the idea of looking for contentment and looking for love. Sometimes it seems just as ridiculous to look for a lover or or try to find contentment in this crazy world.
0: Dinner Party soundtrack, courtesy of Jordan Lee, a.k.a. Mutual Benefit. His album, Love's Crushing Diamond, came out on the other music label this week.
2: All right, and we're going to take a break. Coming up, Oscar Isaac, star of the Coen Brothers' new film, tells us about Travis Picken and Tabby Cats Woo-hoo! when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should let you know that this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in early December, but it's
0: well worth another listen. For instance, coming up, we're going to hear best-selling author Janet Ivanovich tell us how to politely destroy a camper van.
2: And See, I forgot to take notes on that the first time, so this is great.
0: Exactly. And yeah. in a few minutes, we hear from an author who remembers well the Chelsea Hotel, Mm. but
2: first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, namely actor Oscar Isaac. After appearing in the thriller Drive and playing the arch-villain King John in Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, he landed the title role in the latest Coen Brothers film Inside Llewyn Davis, one of my favorites of the year. This weekend, Oscar's up for an Independent Spirit Award for that performance. But
0: not for an Oscar, which would frankly be confusing.
2: Yeah. Maybe it's for the best. Inside Lewin Davis is set in the New York folk scene of the early 60s, especially the nightclub The Gaslight on McDougal Street, and Oscar plays a struggling musician inspired by the real-life folk singer Dave Van Ronk, who was a respected but less well-known contemporary of Bob Dylan. When I spoke to Oscar, I asked him how much of the real Van Ronk ended up in Lewin. The fact that
8: um, he was the anti-Dylan was very important to me, and the fact that he was from the boroughs, you know. A lot of people were descending onto the village at that time from all different places in in America and inventing mythologies for themselves. But um, Lewin, much like Van Ronk, was very direct and upfront about who he was and where he's from kind of
2: the real deal i mean he was from maybe a harder existence you mean
8: yeah 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 you know maybe to his detriment he doesn't (laughs) make up an interesting past for himself no and also you know he was known to have van ronck was known to have a bit of a surly nature at times and lewin davis certainly has that how you doing lewin davis
5: oh hello
8: i've heard your music I've heard many nice things about you from Jim and Gene and from others. You have not heard one nice thing about me from Gene.
2: This is a really tricky role because Lewin is a guy who's surly. He kind of compulsively destroys every relationship he has almost. But we are with him for the whole film, and on some level, we have to like him anyway. And we do. Yeah. How did you do that?
8: (laughs) Well, uh, something that really popped... Out to me when I first read it was the idea of resilience and the comedy of resilience and why is it that someone struggling so desperately is funny? Is it just because I'm sadistic? <laughs> is it because? <laughs> is it just relief that it's not me? Or is it something else? And I and I thought about performances that do that to me that inspire that uh, you know, that make me laugh but also root for the person and that are not maybe overly expressive. What what's another example? I'd say Buster Keaton. Oh, really? Yeah, he's someone where he's basically facing down death every, every, All the time. every other scene, and yet he has this melancholic, impassive gaze. How we doing? We're doing great. Really? New records doing well? Uh, how we doing? Not so hot, I gotta be honest. People need time, you know, get to know you, buy you as a solo actor. Even though you're a solo act. God help. Nobody me. knew us when we were a duo. It's not like me and Mike were ever a big act. It's not a big re education for the
2: public. The thing about this movie is Lewin is actually a great musician. So you had to actually be great. Hmm. And these songs were recorded live on set, right? With like the Coen's musical collaborator T Bone Burnett probably in the house, I'm guessing. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they were, it's a concert movie. You've, you've been in bands and you've played music in previous films, but that still sounds like a lot of pressure to me. Tell me about shooting those scenes. It's critical that they be live because the only time he, he opens
8: up mm. to the world is when he plays his songs. And so if suddenly you see me lip syncing or my hands aren't really doing the playing, no, no. The, it just all falls apart. And I've been playing for about 20 years, but not in this style. In fact, when I first met this friend of mine who's lived on McDougal Street above the old gaslight since 1969, oh and my God. He, uh, I started getting some lessons from him. And he said, you've owned a guitar for 20
2: years. You've been playing maybe for about six months. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's a nice boost of confidence for you. <laughs> as You're about to play for T-Bone Burnett and the Coen Brothers.
8: Exactly. But, uh, but luckily, I was able to rewire my brain and to figure out how to play this very... Um, tricky style, is syncopated style of playing called Travis Picking, Hmm. which is very similar to
2: Stride Piano or or Ragtime. Is there one song on the soundtrack you especially like? Maybe we can play a clip from it. Hang Me. The first song in the movie? Yeah,
8: first song, yeah, it really sets the tone for the whole thing. Hang me Oh, hang me I'll be dead and gone Hang me Oh, hang me I'll be dead and gone I wouldn't mind the hanging But the laying in the graves For oh, no long, boy been all around this world
2: What attracts you to that one?
8: Well, it was the first one that we had to audition with. <laughs> uh, anybody that wanted to, to get up and try to take a swing at being Lewin had to sing Hang Me and uh, Travis picking. And yeah, once I locked in, I haven't been able to, to get out of
2: it. Your future music, you think, will be influenced by this?
4: Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah,
8: it has to be. I mean, working with T-Bone not only
2: changed the way I, I play music, but the way I, I hear music. All right. Well, speaking of your collaborators here, I, I cannot not ask you about working with the Coen brothers. These are two of the greatest living filmmakers. A lot of people mention that they seem to be almost psychic with one another, like they can anticipate each other's words and thoughts. Yeah. Was that your experience, and I am blatantly asking you for stories about this. Yeah,
8: <laughs> uh, absolutely. There are two geniuses, two brains that are making the same movie. So if I was sitting there, I remember I, I, I had my hand in a certain position on my face. We did a take. Joel comes over. I said, maybe I should put my hand down. He goes, yeah, that seems about right. And then he leaves, and Ethan comes up, and he goes, hey, can you do this take without your hand up? <laughs> you know? And it's, it's all these little nuances they, they never go in for the big thematic gestures. It's always no. very practical, slight little modulations. Yeah. And Joel had said direct, directing for him
2: is tone management. All right, we have two questions that we ask all of our guests of honor. The first one is the following. If we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you?
8: Huh, there,
2: What was the cat like? Oh, yeah, you spend a lot of time in this movie taking care of a cat. <laughs> What was the cat like? What kind of question is that? It is a cat. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So don't ask me that. (laughs) Although I will say that that is another reason why we love this character immediately is because you were immediately tasked with taking care of a cat throughout about half of the film. It's the
8: the brilliance of the Coen brothers. They immediately cut any self-seriousness Lewin has by making him schlep around a cat.
2: (laughs) All right. uh, Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. Uh, Speaking of cats, apparently all tabby cats are male so their coloring has something to do with their, their I, Someone randomly identity.
8: came up to me yesterday and said, there's a mistake because there is no
2: female tabby. Cats. Oh, that's right. There's a plot point that turns on the cat being a female.
8: Well, it's a tabby. Th- see, but the way that I defended that was, we never said that it's female. We just said that it didn't
2: have a scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> Always scientifically accurate, the Cohen. Exactly.
8: If I had wings like Noah's dove, i fly the river to the one
2: I love. Oscar Isaac, star of the new film Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, alas, I checked, and not all tabby cats are male. Something like 80% of them are. But I'm happy to say, despite that inaccuracy, Oscar has still been nominated for a Spirit Award for his performance.
0: Enrico, we should note that this is Oscar singing with Marcus Mumford of Mumford & Sons. That's right. Beautifully done. And Justin Timberlake's also in the film, and he sings some songs. That's true. So basically, a movie about a struggling musician is going to sell like a million (laughs) copies of the
2: soundtrack. It's ironic. (laughs)
9: Time to eavesdrop.
2: Writer Cheryl Tippins' last nonfiction book was about a home shared by the likes of Carson McCullers, W. H. Auden, and Gypsy Rose Lee. Her new book is about another building chock full of artists, New York's Chelsea Hotel. Today we overhear her tell a few choice Chelsea tales.
1: Hi, my name is Cheryl Tippins. I have a new book out about the Chelsea Hotel called Inside the Dream Palace. Mm-hmm. The Chelsea was created by Philip Hubert, a utopian-minded Frenchman. It was 11 stories high when almost everyone lived in five-story brownstones, so it towered over the whole city. And the theory was to create a synergistic energy, a kind of human transcendence through the interaction of all different kinds of people, rich and poor, artists and working men really wanted to encourage people to get to know each other so he would create different places for people to socialize. The halls were eight feet wide so that they would be like a little village street where people would linger and chat and he had communal dining rooms where everyone ate together downstairs but his favorite place was the roof. Part of this utopian thought was that the higher you get in a building, the more spiritual the atmosphere is supposed to get. There was a huge circular staircase that wound up 11 stories to the roof. So by the time you reach the roof, you have literally transcended the Chelsea. It's such an amazing place. It's a jumble of chimneys and peaked roofs and the movement of the clouds. New York was always famous in the 1800s for having beautiful Venetian skies. And at the top of the Chelsea, you can actually see that. Beautiful, amazing sunsets. And that's where all of this creative and artistic energy that the Chelsea's so famous for congealed. It really hit its stride in the late 1950s, early 1960s. There was a composer named George Kleinsinger. He turned his penthouse into a jungle. He had an eight-foot python and a tortoise and, and exotic birds. He was a big party guy, and so people loved to come to the jungle and hang out in the jungle. And he had a big grand piano, and he would play music for everybody. Another person who lived on the top floor of the Chelsea was Arthur C. Clarke who was working on 2001 A Space Odyssey with Stanley Kubrick. He was also a big partier and he was very popular. For example, he brought one of the first portable lasers up to the roof and he would aim it down to the sidewalk. Passersby would be very confused and they would chase it or their pet dogs would chase it down the sidewalk and everybody would laugh. But my favorite story, I think, is about one time when the synergy on the rooftop failed to occur. The summer of 67, I think it was August, experimental filmmaker Shirley Clark, she was going to have the Grateful Dead give a concert. A River, so they started a few songs. Everything was great. It was a beautiful summer night.
5: Now she's gone, 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 I don't worry. Cause I'm sitting on top of the
1: world But all of a sudden, Andy Warhol wandered up with his entourage. He was standing there, watching from behind his sunglasses at night, watching this loving, you know, California music. The song falters, it slows down, and finally the musicians just put their instruments down. They say, sorry, this isn't working. We can't play in this atmosphere. And they blamed Andy Warhol. They said he was sucking all the energy out of the experience. He was like an ambulatory black hole, is what they called him. (laughs) The Chelsea Hotel has been sold, and it's unknown what's going to happen to the roof. We'll know in about a year, I guess.
0: Writer Cheryl Tippins, her new book about the Chelsea is called Inside the Dream Palace, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media.
2: And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we learn about food. Enrico, this week
0: our topic is the fortified wine with aromatics, often added to a martini, known as vermouth. No. I know, I know. Why? (laughs) As a dry martini fan, I too thought we'd come close to eradicating it in this country. We were so close. But it's making a comeback. In the past few years, American vintners have put out their own versions of this traditionally European drink. Right. And I hoped if I ignored them, they would go away. <laughs> but no alas, way. this week New York magazine published an article proclaiming the rise of Vermouth. So I visited their food editor, Alan Sisma, and asked, Why did you do this to me?
10: I don't know what to tell you. I mean, people have taken Vermouth and made it, as they have with everything, artisanal. So the market is flooded with handmade, handcrafted, high-quality vermouth. You know, it's very continental to start your meal with an aperitif, something a little lighter, something, you know, it's stronger than wine. It's, they're usually around like 15 18%, but they're not going to knock you out the way a martini does before the meal. So people are kind of embracing that.
0: All right, well, in the interest of knowing thine enemy... I bought a couple European vermouths and a couple of this new, new look vermouth in America. So let's start here with, I, I bought Dolan's French Dry Vermouth.
10: French Dry Vermouth is the vermouth that martini drinkers ignore when they're talking about dry martinis. This is it. It's really light. It's clear. It's basic. It is, you know, at a certain level, just a mixer. Um, I don't know if I would really suggest doing these straight, but we're going to do it anyway. Well,
0: let's just taste it. If we decide we don't like it, this will prove my point. <laughs>
10: <laughs> well, not yet because we've only just begun.
0: Well, let's just take a little sip here. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Right. This does taste like the thing that if there's too much of this in my martini, it makes me sad.
10: It's syrupy. It's a little bitter, not really. I mean, it tastes like what it is, which was originally just a way to save wine that was going to spoil. So,
0: so that is that where vermouth came from?
10: That's one of the the rumors, anyway. One of the stories. But yeah, I mean, that's what it is. It's wine. Stuff has been added to it. It's been spiked with a neutral spirit, like a vodka kind of a thing. Um, They use grape spirits often. And so that's what it is. It's wine that's just been made a little bit stronger and a little bit more resilient through the use of all these botanicals.
0: All right. Well, this is not an unfamiliar taste, and it's pretty unoffensive. It's just pretty much meh.
10: Yeah, it's like the 7-Up of the vermouth world.
0: All right, so let's move on. And, And this is another
10: classic, and this is... Sweet vermouth, uh, sweet Italian vermouth. Carpano Antica, which is, I have no Italian verve in the way I say it. But um, yeah, that's, that's what it is. Sweet vermouth is typically associated with Italy, even though French people make both, Italian people make both, Americans make all kinds. But it, it is the style that, that people think of first, and it was the first kind of vermouth. And this is what people, in America anyway, are adding to their Manhattans.
0: This is a much darker vermouth. It's like red vermouth. It smells a little bit like olives. Am I crazy?
10: No, I mean, there's a lot of nuttiness in it. You know, the aromatics, they keep secret. That These are, you know, the kinds of recipes that have been held onto for hundreds of generations. Some yeah. monk invented them at some time, and now they everybody is, uh, you know, very secretive about what they put in there.
0: Yet another reason we can't trust vermouth.
10: <laughs> Live with a little mystery in your life. It's okay. All right, let's taste this.
0: Now, this is much, yeah, much, much sweeter, and maybe a little licorice in there.
10: Yeah, it's, it's a lot more amped up. I mean, it's not gentle. It's not neutral. It's sweeter, but then it's also a lot more bitter at the end.
0: Moving on to the American vermouths, let's check out this Massican vermouth from California, which this looks just like a, well, a very tall bottle of Pinot Grigio, and it smells really uh, yeah. lemony.
10: It's so different than the other ones, just so many more aromatics. It's really fresh. Um, it's really floral. Wow,
0: it is it almost dare I say tastes like a like a cleaning supply
10: <laughs> It's strong, it's definitely strong, um and especially compared to the other ones. this one you know we're not drinking it with ice. I would recommend it it's going to soften it a lot. All right,
0: so let's try this last one, and this is called Uncouth Vermouth. It's made in Brooklyn in what else? Small batches.
10: I mean, just looking at the bottle, you know it's either made in Brooklyn, Portland, Oregon, or possibly Austin, Texas. Those are the only three possible places it could come from. You know, it has that kind of like Moulin Rouge sort of vibe to it, but definitely the, the rough-hewn, hand-worn kind of aesthetic is going on as well.
0: Uh, and also, the other thing that gives it away is, so this is vermouth, and on the bottom left corner, it says pear ginger.
10: What you're seeing a lot from a lot of these American vermouth makers is that they're really breaking away from the basic dry or sweet. They're doing all sorts of weird, weird flavors, as evidenced by the name.
0: Let's give this a shot. It is a
10: ginger color, in keeping right. with
0: the the go. flavor. <laughs> it tastes like ginger. I'm, I guess there's pear in there.
10: It's ginger forward, you might say. Um, and then it kind of like it kind of drops off. Like there, it doesn't really follow a lot. But that's the other thing where it's not lingering you know it's just sort of disappearing and getting you ready to move on to a bottle of wine so you know it's just it's something different i don't think that there's any reason for people to kind of pigeonhole into i gotta have a cocktail or i gotta have beer and wine but there's a lot more going on and this is just kind of another example so
0: the dry martinis not under threat it's safe i
10: think they'll probably be around for a little while longer yeah i don't think they're going anywhere but you can have this as an alternative
0: Alan Sitzma, food editor at New York Magazine. Their article about New Look Vermouth is nicely written, but I can
2: in good conscience tell you to read it. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, international movie star Mads Mikkelsen tells us about happy murderers and infighting filmmakers when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we'll hear a new song from the band The War on Drugs. And in just a few minutes, Mads Mikkelsen describes the deranged maniac he plays on TV like this.
11: Probably one of the happiest men I've ever played.
2: Creepy. There you go. But speaking of receiving moral instruction, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson.
0: Yes. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is Janet Ivanovich. She got her start writing romantic fiction. She's now famous for her wildly successful mystery adventure novels featuring lingerie buyer turned bounty hunter Stephanie Plum. <laughs> all in all, Janet has sold more than 75 million books. Oh, her man. latest is called Takedown 20. And it is, yes, the 20th installment in the Plum series. Nice. And Janet, welcome. Thank you. Well titled. Well titled. I know you you have your audience help you with the titles.
9: Yeah, I'm missing the title gene. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. We needed help on that.
0: But So this is your 20th Stephanie Plum novel. And I'm curious, at this point, what is your relationship like with Stephanie? Is she like an old friend? Is she a daughter you're watching grow up? Or is she just a day job?
9: Well, you know, a little bit of everything. But she is a day job. You know, I'm a professional, and uh, not that I don't know where she lives. You know, like, if you notice, I'm, I'm wearing Uggs today, even though mm-hmm. I'm in L.A., mm-hmm. because I broke my toe over the weekend.
0: Oh, man. So, it's just yeah. a little reminiscent of
9: I, You know, plumb. one of those Stephanie things. I mean, at least twice a year, I break a toe. <laughs> and um, But I wanted to be all dressed up, you know, today, because, like, I had a lot of media and everything. So I got Uggs with, see, little bows in the back. Yeah. These are my dress Uggs. I think you yeah, need my... steel
2: toe boots, is what it yes. sounds like. Oh,
9: that would take all the fun out of it. It. you know life is an adventure right
2: yeah uh many of the books all of them i guess take place in trenton new jersey this is where stephanie is from this is where you're from and at least partly this book revolves around stephanie tracking down this mobster named uncle sonny and there is such a history of these kind of characters the the new jersey mobster what maybe previous characters did you draw from or maybe what did you consciously stay away from coming up with? Uh, this
9: i was just basically ripping off the sopranos <laughs> Really? Good job. Y'all yeah, steal from anybody. I'm not proud. <laughs> Go for the best.
0: Well, yeah. this whole series was inspired by Midnight Run, right? The movie That's with true. Robert De Niro where he plays a bounty hunter.
9: Yeah. I was coming out of romance and um, looking for something that my heroine could do uh, because I didn't want her to be a PI and I didn't want her to be a cop.
4: Mm. And
9: I saw the movie Midnight Run and I thought, this is so cool, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like, I didn't know anything about the bail bonds industry. I'd never heard about bounty hunters. and It's
2: kind of between like a, an outlaw and the law in a weird way.
9: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was a long time ago. It was before Dog.
2: That,
0: you know, the, like the TV now, show. Yeah.
9: Now everybody knows about yeah. bounty hunters. But. Well, and
0: also in public radio, we hire bounty hunters for people who say they're going to donate and don't. <laughs> yeah.
9: I could make some money in my spare time. <laughs> That's right. I...
0: So are you ready for our etiquette questions? Yeah. Our audience is yeah, really excited. Yeah, because I'm just you're...
9: full of etiquette. Well, we sure. can
0: tell.
2: This is from Kevin in Seattle. And Kevin writes, There is almost always a camper parked outside my apartment. 30 feet of light-blocking, parking-hogging lameness. I don't know who it belongs to, not someone in our small complex. Just curious, how would Stephanie Plum take care of this?
9: Well, if she needed money, she could have it towed and, and sent to a chop shop, and she might be able to make some spare change, you know. But <laughs> if she really wanted to have fun with it, I think um, she could get Lula to shoot out the tires. Um, no, and her then, her yeah, driver and her. Yeah, and then maybe explode it. I'd love car explosions. I mean, Clearly. I have to Yeah, I have to destroy at least four cars in a book. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she could have it run over by a dump truck. That's much truck. better. Yeah, All right. that would be
2: good. That's a little more polite.
9: Okay. So
2: there
0: you go, Kevin. You can either bomb it, you can send it to a chop shop, or have someone run it over.
2: There you go. There you Three go. Three choices, and just whichever fits into your lifestyle, I All guess, right. Kevin. All right.
0: This next question comes from Lisa in Burbank, and Lisa writes, Stephanie's mother is constantly pushing her to change jobs. I hear they're hiring at the button factory, is one line when she's trying to get her to switch work. What's the best way to politely decline job-related advice from relatives?
9: Um, well, she could say, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you're trying to help me get a job. Sure. Um, and the Button Factory is very exciting, but I've already accepted a position at the Condom Factory. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yes, you know, there really was a Condom Factory in Trenton. Is that true? Really? Yeah.
2: Was it a major wow. employer?
9: Yeah, it was. Yeah, the Trojan Factory was there. <laughs> it was and a company yeah, town for yes, Trojan? Yes, yes, it was. And when I started the book— <laughs> I wanted to use that and everybody was like oh my god you can't do that so I changed it to a button factory
5: <laughs> wow <laughs> but it
9: was yeah
0: like, Trent famously the slogan is uh, Trent makes, makes what yes. the world takes and now I'm trying to work that into a condom <laughs> factory it's like Trenton prevents the world from making Yeah, it's, making. Uh,
9: it's, not a good, it's not a good visual
2: and now we have a nice euphemism for condoms we
9: we'll right. call
0: them buttons so there you go Lisa just shame your mother by uh, suggesting you're going to get a more <laughs> embarrassing job
2: here's <laughs> something from Melinda in Los Angeles. I love this question. There is a woman in my office, writes Melinda, who always calls me Meredith, even though my name is Melinda. She's super nice, and we've had some deep conversations. However, she's been calling me by the wrong name for about two months now. Last week, she did it in front of some other co-workers, and now I feel like I'm leading a double life. Help! This actually happens a lot.
9: Well, I think you know, good for you because you have a double life. That means you can have twice as many hot guys. Oh, and anyway, who really cares? Get a life, Melinda. It is,
2: but, <laughs> but, but it's her. It's
0: her name. I like what? how you use the correct name. But, you call
2: you're get a life, Melinda. I mean, how she. How did she get herself into this thing? Don't you just? They say it the first time and yeah, just correct she? them.
9: Yeah, wouldn't she correct? Me? Or why? Why I is think,
0: why is Melinda not to be mean to our listeners? Why is she, Melinda? Why do you have to hang out
2: with this woman?
9: Well, she seems like she's
2: nice. She says that she's nice. I think this is
0: Melinda's well,
9: problem. Or she but, could get a magic marker and she could write her name on her forehead.
2: That's right. <laughs> that's
9: See, these hint. problems are so easy to solve. Yeah. you just got to be creative. Just go for it. Yeah, and or, maybe I
2: mean maybe on some level she wants to lead a double life, or she would have corrected the or, woman. Or she to begin could with.
9: start um, a campaign to call everybody by the wrong name. <laughs>
2: There you go. She should start calling this friend. Yeah,
9: yeah. Fred. Call her Fred.
2: (laughs) All right. There you go, Melinda. All right. Or Meredith. Yeah. So we have a question from
0: John in Pasadena, California. John writes, why shouldn't it be okay to quietly talk on a cell phone while dining out alone? Other patrons talk with each other. I like.
9: That. I don't. I don't know why it isn't okay. Yeah, it's <laughs> I, weird
0: when you put it that way. I don't way. think it's yeah. okay.
9: I mean, really? Yeah. Why? Because
0: Wh- I feel like uh, my antennae are up. Years and years of evolution have told us that if someone's talking to themselves, they're crazy. Yeah. And you, you need to protect your yourself. So your whole Darwinian biological drive to protect your family kits up.
9: Well, that's sort of scary. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. He's thinking yeah, after reading your
2: books this is how one thinks.
9: Yeah, I mean, I think noise is noise, you know, and if you can talk to some guy next to you, you should be able to talk on your cell phone as long as it's
2: quiet. It's also, I mean, in a way though, by, by making this such an issue, it's like lonely people have to pay the price. They're they're lonely, they want to talk to somebody, they don't have a buddy to spend then time with. they can get dinner. a TV dinner and call their friends at
0: home. <laughs> and they
9: can <laughs> Boy, you're tough. I tell He's you. He's a little tougher than me. Man, you know? I'm he, just telling you. You're from New York and you're not not talking on your cell phone in restaurants and what what is that <laughs> i i'm i can't afford to go out to restaurants
0: yeah in New York. or have oh. a phone and we don't have cell phone service in subways which is amazing yes. people just have to read books it's terrible
9: so. well i'm in favor of reading books okay. <laughs> i would imagine there you go yeah. yeah
2: all right so john if you're going to be on the phone talk quietly or better yet bring a book yes and janet thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave
9: it was fun
0: Janet Ivanovich. Her latest book is called Takedown 20. It's another installment of her best-selling series about bounty hunter Stephanie Plum.
2: And, folks, if there is an answer to an etiquette question that has eluded you, we will track it down for you. That's right. The price is free. Just send your query to our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org.
0: So next month, the nominees for the Academy Awards will be announced which means this month people are voting. That means Academy members will be sifting through stacks of DVDs of domestic and foreign films trying to figure out what's what. One of those films will be The Hunt, which is Denmark's submission for the Best Foreign Picture Prize. It's directed by Thomas Vinterberg and stars Mads Mikkelsen, who won Best Actor at Cons for his performance in that film. Americans are probably more familiar with Mads as the bad guy who cried blood in the James Bond film Casino Royale or for his turn as a young Hannibal Lecter, everybody's favorite cannibal uh, in the NBC series Hannibal. Mads, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about the character you play in The Hunt.
11: Lucas is a a man like you and me. He's a school teacher who got fired half a year ago because the school shut down, and now he's uh, eventually found a job in a kindergarten. Uh, Not the job he preferred, but that's where he is, and he's making the best of it. He's uh, just kind of like struggling with a newly divorced and in custody of his own son. And that's where we find him in the beginning. It's a little small community, a lot of friends, and they have a lot of things in common. And all of a sudden, one day, a little girl accuses him of something, and and this whole world collapses and implodes. And, And this is where we start the story.
0: You've been in lots of films. I'm wondering, what were the particular challenges of playing this sort of character?
11: Well, there's always challenges with every character, I think. I... I would rather turn around and say it, 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 it might look like a difficult film, but it was not as difficult as it looks in the mm. sense that the script was extremely well-written and beautiful and, and, and heartbreaking. So for us as actors, we... We prefer that, uh, as opposed to things that look less difficult, but might be actually because it's not—it's not that well prepared.
0: Because you have to fill in the blanks in a way when the script isn't strong enough.
11: More like we can lean into a script like this, and we can—we uh, can—we um, can feel free in a different way than we can with stuff that's not working, as simple as that.
0: But also in a script like this, and in a lot of realist sort of films, you don't have the benefit of costumes or cgi or anything like that
11: well we're kind of used to that for where i come from you know <laughs> we don't have giant scorpions and pirate boats uh, yeah. so, so this is the films that we've been growing up doing and watching ourselves so so we're kind of used to it i, I do not mind cgi and I, I love fighting giant scorpions as well uh but <laughs> i you guess like crying blood i would love to do that again yeah. once yeah uh but this is where we we come from this is our this is our base
0: i'm interested in that so This movie also has some dark themes. It's it's a dark story. And that's not uncommon in Danish film. And also Scandinavian culture in general. What is it about... Scandinavian culture beyond simply the darkness, which happens many months well, later. It is
11: quite interesting. I think it was last uh, the, day, the year before we were voted the most happy people in the world, <laughs> and then <laughs> yet we come up with these kind of, as you say, very dark films. I do not necessarily see it as a dark film. I see it as a topic that has been uh, been in the surface and nobody wanted to touch it. It's not been political correct to address issues like this, mm. and I, I see it more like a. a, a uh, uh, less fear of touching subjects than you might have in, in, in other places in the world.
0: So when you finish this role, or maybe simultaneous with this role, playing a man wrongly accused, you were playing a young serial killer <laughs> yes. and,
11: and a cannibal. I like the way you emphasize young. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they think you're young. I mean, makeup's amazing. Yeah, great. In radio, we're always young. Yes. Um, those are both very dark places to hang out every yeah. day,
11: mentally. They are. I mean... Uh, I would say for the character of Hannibal, he does not necessarily see as a dark area or a dark place. That's true. Yeah. He is probably, and I'm sad to say so, probably one of the happiest men I've ever played. He, he yeah. it, You don't, as an actor, carry anything back home because he is... Tremendously satisfied in his life, mm-hmm. and every day is a new opportunity, and, and, and he's just looking forward to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, so in terms of like carrying a weight or going to a dark place as an actor, this is not really the case with him. He's going into places he loves to be.
0: Well, I you, you described him. I, I feel I think this is you as someone as like kind of like Satan,
11: the fallen angel. After yeah. told yeah, a fallen angel. Will, I mean, an angel is pretty. Yeah, uh, and, and and but it's just fallen. That means that where we see light, he sees dark, and he finds life most interesting on the threshold to death. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean that he enjoys evilness. He just sees something beautiful there. Right?
0: Yeah, so he's not as tortured. It kind of goes. To Absolutely, what he's
11: not one of those guys who's fighting something from his childhood that is yeah. haunting him nonstop. Definitely yeah. not. It's it's just he sees beauty where we see pain. I'm very careful about what I put into my body, which means I end up preparing most meals myself. A little protein scramble to start the day. Some eggs, some sausage. Ah, that's delicious, thank you. My pleasure.
0: So I want to talk about something else, which I'm sure you've talked about before, but I found it intriguing. You were a professional dancer before mm-hmm. you became an actor. What was the inspiration to make that shift into acting?
11: I don't know. this It was never a dream for me to be an actor, and it was never a dream for me to be a dancer. It's just something that happened in a... As a coincidence, I was a gymnast, and I was asked to be in a show and do some flips in the background, and eventually the choreographer asked if I wanted to learn the craft. Yeah. I had nothing else to do, so I said yes. <laughs> so, so I did that for 10 years. And, uh, but I felt really fast that, I mean, I, I loved doing it, but I was more in love with the drama of dancing than the aesthetic of dancing. And so eventually, after a while, I asked myself the question, why don't you try to do drama full-time? So I applied for a school, and I, I got in.
0: And was it ever a question of not going to school, of maybe just trying out for films?
11: Could have been. I mean, it's not really the same situation in Denmark as it is in in, uh, in the States. Films are uh, enormous over here. And, and, and at that time, Danish film was not the biggest uh, thing you've ever seen. So theater would probably be the first step. Uh, so school, uh, we had to do that. You, you just no. don't go and walk in on a, on a theater stage like that.
0: But it was a kind of, if I'm correct, uh, you did this around 96, 97 which was there was a lot of energy in this Danish cinema. There was oh, yeah. Dogma ninety five was a year or two old. Absolutely, and it was very I mean,
11: well in ninety five. I did the Pusher film as well. So mm-hmm. everything, a lot of things happened at the same time. There were like Thomas Vinterberg had his group, mm-hmm. Nicholas Winding had his group, mm-hmm. Lars von Trier had one, and Susanne B and so on. And all these groups hated each other, of course. Really? <laughs> well, we had to. We had to define ourselves. You know, yeah. We wanted to do Mean Streets. They wanted to do something else, whatever. Yeah. So we to had to define. Our gasoline was to define ourselves. Yeah. And, and sometimes, uh, not necessarily hate, but let's say disgust. But <laughs> <laughs> <No>, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a good fuel, it's right? It's
0: not a huge industry. Though. I mean, <laughs> no. it's a film is big in Denmark, but you're ta- it's not that big a country.
11: And no, so no, no, exactly. But, but you're still tribal. Things, yeah, we did. I mean, we had to, to define ourselves yeah. I mean, later on when we... We were a little older, we, we did realize that they were not too shabby the other one side. Yeah, right?
0: but you've now acted in most of those groups, if I'm yes. correct,
11: right? Vinterberg and. I'm not maybe. a loyal person. <laughs> or maybe the walls just collapsed, those They we did, and, and, and thank God for that.
0: Mads Mikkelsen, star of the TV series Hannibal, which comes back this week, and star of the Danish drama The Hunt, which is nominated for Best Foreign
2: Film at the Academy Awards this weekend. And folks, that concludes this encore broadcast of The Dinner Party Download. We'll have an all-new episode for you next week, but till then, you can keep up with us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is Dinner Party D N L D. Jackson Musker
0: is the associate producer of the show. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. Engineering assistance this week came from Chris Clark and Jeff Peters, Brittany Martin helps us with digital stuff. Our interns are James Dallahousie and Esther Mania. Special thanks this week to Lindsay Edgecombe, Fletcher Kohlhausen, and Alexis Pavanick.
2: And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The song is called Red Eyes, and it comes courtesy of the War on Drugs, the band, not the government policy. It's from their album Lost in the Dream, which comes out March 18th. Bon appétit. I'm Rico Galliano, Brendan Francis Newnham. Uh thanks for listening to the Dinner Party Download. Nunam, N E W N A M. Are you really on your cell phone right now? Seriously? Yeah, according to you it's fine. Hello?
0: Yeah, I'd like to report a crime. Vermouth broke into my martini.